Hello, and welcome to Make Data Human. I'm Anjali Beatty, and I'm joined by my favorite data enthusiasts, Michael Wolf and DBS. On this episode, we're going to be talking about something that seems rather obvious, but is actually frequently misunderstood. Data, and what data actually is. Data to me is, is information, just plain and simple information. And you could see data as a collection of facts, maybe, such as uh, numbers or words, even measurements or observations. So it's just a description of things, a large set of information that you can use to feed a, a strategy or a solution to a problem. That, to me, is data. There seems to be a lot of questions as to what actually constitutes data. And is data simply numbers in an Excel sheet? Or can data also be something like a photo of cats? Both of them are data, actually, because you can have a set of numbers, but that same cat and that image of a cat is also a set of numbers, which, which DBS will explain extensively um, in, in our series. But both are actually data. And I think that's really important to understand and to explain. Also, when explaining this to my parents was data is everywhere. It's all around us. So if you understand that data is just information, you will realize that data is everywhere and information is everywhere as well. Representation is the key word here. We can represent anything in terms of data. You know, so Micah's point about pictures, we can represent a picture in terms of numbers because we look at pixels, little squares that make up a picture. And each of those pixels has a color grading, red, green, blue. And each of those gradings is a number. So that's how we convert an image to a number. Any piece of information you could think of in, you know, that we, we interact with day to day, we can convert into a number. So it's a technically data. And the more and more, you know, that the internet has taken hold of the world, the more and more data we collect and the more and more we can, you know, pull these things in and, and understand them as data. Well, if data is so simple, which it feels like by your description, why are people so afraid of it? I don't think people should be afraid of it. Uh, I think it's something that you really have to embrace once you understand what it is and the power that it has and that it can cre create it and used for good rather, rather than just the bad. And that you can be incredibly flexible but also creative in the type of data that you use and that you gather, but mainly the outputs that it can generate. So not necessarily evil, but also good. And once we, we are able to... to uh, help people understand that, I think the, the fear will, will slowly decrease. It's understanding and embracing that it can do good and that it's everywhere. It's funny, you know, the, the phrase information is power. No one thinks of information as dangerous, you know, in, in that way. But I think because of where we are with technology nowadays, like information, which is essentially data, is power. And because of technology, that power becomes super powerful. And the things that we can now do with that information and how quickly we can do it and how, you know, in some cases, how disguised that can be. Technology making decisions for us without us really knowing how or why. Like that's where information is power, hidden power. That's when it becomes scary. And I, I personally think it's because people don't understand or they're not aware of what that data is and what that technology is and then what that power is. DBS, you as a head of data science are the person who is responsible for developing a lot of these technologies and algorithms. So I'm really curious to know from your perspective, where do you draw the line between 
where data and technology is useful and where it becomes dangerous. I think power isn't fully realized until it's appreciated. You know, most data scientists work on problems that aren't going to change the world, right? They're, they're trying to classify cats, like you say, or they're trying to, you know, predict the weather, right? These, these things aren't going to change the world, but the underlying technology that they're building can, you know, if put in the, in the wrong hands. We all need to have an awareness of what the fuller impact could be of the technology that we're building um, and think about how to, to govern it and, and to understand it. You know, there's a lot of black box algorithms that we don't fully understand. You know, they're making decisions and we don't really understand why. You know, we're working really hard in, in the academic field to try and create something called explainable ML. Um, so you can understand how decisions are being made when you throw loads of data into an algorithm. But, you know, we're, we're still not there. And I think when you can't explain something, it becomes scary, you know, even to us. But I think we have to care about it more as data scientists, as machine learning engineers. We have to care about how, uh, you know, not just the outcome of, of the prediction, let's say, but how that prediction is being made. And we have to be aware of things like bias, which, you know, has become popularized by you know netflix series like coded bias which we can talk about that another time i think they you know over dramatize it a little bit but um it is true these are things that we need to have at the front of our minds when we're building technology and 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 the everyday person should be able to to appreciate or, or understand these things and put pressure on those building it to be aware and put these at the front of of what they do day to day but you know, coming back to what I said to begin with, I, I think it's just that there's not an appreciation for the potential impact. And most people aren't working on things that are going to change the world, but it's those that are. At the moment, it's like a snowball. You know, one one person develops something, they push it out there. There's this thing called open source and code gets shared, data gets shared. And it's all very dangerous in terms of where it could end up. You know, look at deep fakes, look at the ability to take a video and put someone else's face on it and trick the common person i mean we now have algorithms to detect those things or detect when fakes have been made but someone looking on twitter and they see a, a video of of the ukrainian president talking that they're not going to be able to detect whether that's real or fake and that's when it becomes you know really dangerous because they've the wrong people have got the technology in in their hands you just mentioned bias, and I'd love to, to kind of dive into this a bit more because there's been so many instances in the past of, let's say, images of African-Americans being tagged as gorillas or images of when you Google women, it's all photos of women in the kitchen that come up. So there's been a lot of conversation around how data in a lot of ways reinforces biases that we have that are really negative for society. How can we actually start to use data to combat bias? And where does that begin? I mean, you said it right. Data is a representation of the world, right? So if we took a picture of every single person in the world, we would have minority groups, right? There would be pictures that would have a much smaller volume than, you know, the, the majority um, groups. And if you feed those things into uh, any algorithm, any technology that's trying to make predictions or, or learn things, then they're going to be impacted by what you feed into them. So 
In your case, I think the reason why that algorithm was unable to make some predictions of of those minority groups as well is because it hadn't seen as many examples of those faces. So it couldn't learn what those faces looked like and make predictions about who they are, right? So what we feed into algorithms is so important because we, like you say, we are creating the bias based on that the algorithm's not clever enough to, to know what bias is, regardless of those articles that are saying that, you know, Google's Lambda is, is sentient. Lambda is a, a recent algorithm they developed. Some complete rubbish. I mean, it's not sentient. It's a, a number of matrix multiplications in, you know, in a computer somewhere. But uh, so they're not going to know what bias is, right? But we do as humans, and we control what we feed into the algorithm. So we can, in, in a sense, control what the algorithm looks at, what it learns from, and what it predicts. You know, there's a huge amount of trust in the researcher and the developer to be aware of that and ensure that we're not just replicating, and in some cases, making it worse, right? Look at the algorithm that, that was used by the police to predict that someone's a criminal, right? What happens is it kind of gets into this local minima, which is like, let's optimise, you know, predictions. And it reinforces the problem that you see in, in everyday life, which is that minority groups are over-targeted, right? So the data that we collect is biased. The data that we feed into the algorithm is biased and you're, you're doubling down on that impact. So it gets even worse. So it's even more important that we, we're really careful about what we feed into, into these algorithms. I think the, the flip side or the, the positive uh, side of, of using data and expanding the way that we gather data and use data in decision-making is it can inherently help us to remove bias. Humans are always biased, depending on where you grew up, the experiences that you had in life, uh, the educational background that you have. We all have bias. The positive thing about data, if, if gathered correctly, is data never lies. The problem lies with how do you integrate that type of data, whether it's counterintuitive or not, into your decision making. And I see what we see in a lot of situations is that data, when collected right, it presents uh, problems to two decision makers that they'd never seen before or that they might not understand. But the data doesn't lie. So the problem doesn't lie in the data, but in the people that have to use the data and make decisions accordingly. And that is where I agree with DBS in saying we need to make sure that, that we understand how algorithms are, are developed, what we use them for, but also what feeds into that, and be able to explain the process that we went through to, to collect it and what it means. So taking, taking a behavioral science approach, um, you could have a set of data that explains how people feel about, for instance, taking um, a vaccination against COVID. That data may be completely counterintuitive to decision makers because it says people do not want to take the vaccine because they're scared. That might be counterintuitive because a decision maker might say, but how can people refuse that? Surely you must not be afraid <laughs> to take it because, you know, it can make you very, very ill. But you need to understand that other people have a very different way of living, have a different way of looking at the world than you might have. So in that perspective, I think data can help us remove bias rather than creating more of it. But yeah, it needs to be integrated in a proper fashion. And that has been, throughout my career, the most difficult process. Being an advocate for that data and explaining data to, to that decision maker and saying, actually, this is what it means and this is what you should, should take away from it. I think that's where our biggest responsibility lies. 
data advocacy. So, Micah, I see what you mean conceptually, but could you give us practical, tangible examples where you've seen this occur in real life? I think the, the downside to humans is that we're, we're naturally inclined to, to think very linear. So we, we like to take shortcuts um, in, in our brain to come up with a solution, right? That's, that's uh, evolution. So nonlinear thinking and taking data into account to make, to make maybe more creative uh, decisions is a very uh, specific trait. So if we want to create an understanding of a situation where it involves groups of people, groups of, of human beings, I think it is really, really important that you are able to, to empathize with such a group. And I think from my own experience, the, um, uh, the war in Afghanistan has always been, been a very good example where we had the best of intentions, but we were never, to, never able to understand the groups that, that we would uh, try to help and, and support. So don't get me wrong, huh? with, with empathizing, I don't mean sympathizing. Those are two different things. But it's, it's a very conscious process for, for people to constantly question their own bias. So we had a lot of difficulty understanding the Taliban. The Taliban, that as a concept, did not really exist. It was a whole of society uh, thought rather than an organization per se. And, and data uh, actually told us that as well. But if that is difficult to understand or if that makes it more difficult to take decisions accordingly, just like in my example with, with the COVID vaccinations, if you don't understand that people might be afraid of taking a vaccine and therefore are not taking the vaccine, you need to listen to the data a little bit better in order to create strategies that will actually resonate and lead to, to the outcome that you want. So data advocacy and, and translating data into understandable language for, for both parties, I think is the most important task that's ahead of us, besides what DBS was, was saying in uh, um, making those algorithms more transparent and even more thorough. Ah, speaking of algorithms, DBS, what is an algorithm? Do you want the uh, long version or the short version? Let's go the short version. Short and simple. Okay, because I've got a very long answer to this question. But <laughs> <laughs> an algorithm, people describe it in, in many different ways. But to me, uh, an algorithm is basically a decision-making process that can be implemented within a computer, right? So it's, a, it's basically a set of rules. And those rules can either be hard-coded so that the person who designs that program decides exactly what the decision should be. So, for example... You know, I decide anyone who is 18 or over can see this content, right? Anyone younger cannot, right? I can code that into an algorithm and that's a decision-making process that can be put into a computer. The other type of algorithm are algorithms that are um, machine learning based. So we don't make the decision on exactly why uh, the outcome is what it is but we train the algorithm to make those decisions for us. So it might be a credit card approval, right? So we use all of the previous data to see who has defaulted on their credit card and who has paid their credit card. We feed all of that data into an algorithm and that algorithm can make decisions based on who you are and your previous spending or your, or your credit score, all these different things, where you are in the world what your age is, what your occupation is, whatever, the algorithm can then make the decision on your behalf using all of that data. 
And that's what I mean about black box. Some algorithms, you can, you know, open them up and say, okay, because that person has got a credit score, you know, above 700, that's really important to the fact they're not going to default. Or because, you know, they are located in a state that's got, you know, high employment rates. Okay, that's going to add a little bit more positive, you know. All of these decisions are made fundamentally by the algorithm with an outcome. And some of them you can dive into and understand. Others you cannot. These are called kind of black box algorithms. And, and you, you might have heard of deep learning. I'm sure you have, Anthony. But for, for, for people listening, deep learning, which is the new wave of, you know, highly predictive uh, algorithms that do require lots and lots of data, actually. That's a, a common theme of deep learning is they have to go deep. So they have to have a lot of data to to look at so um yeah that's short version wasn't that short but <laughs> algorithms are often perceived as the big boogeyman controlling our every move should we be afraid of data manipulating us or human beings using data as a tool to manipulate us i think it's both ways i think if specifically if you talk about like natural language processing so, so natural language processing allows um machines to basically break down and interpret human language. So it's it's used on an everyday basis, right? From from chatbots to, to um, grammar software or voice assistants like Alexa or even social media monitoring tools. And we use that on a daily basis. It supports our life completely. Google Maps is another great example. I mean, I know a lot of people that cannot drive based on their, their brains anymore, but just use Google Maps blindly. But there's, there's all kinds of approaches behind that that drive it. And if you don't understand what drives it, it can become very fearful. And that's what, what fear is about in the first place. Huh? We, we know that really well from, from behavioral science. If you don't know something, it's easier to fear it rather than to embrace it. And that's, again, is, is our responsibility to educate. Educate people on what are these approaches? How can it be used for bad? But mainly, how can it be used for, for good? Because that's, I think, is, is really important to, to educate people upon, that it can be used for good, not only for bad. It gives us very powerful insights into emotions, motivations, um, psychology, personalities, but any type of other situation that, that can help us rather than, than fight us. But I mean, that's why we're, you know, we're doing this podcast, right? Because we want, we believe that, that data can be used for good. And I think the more that people understand it and how it's used and and what they can do and what we can do together the more likely we are to have a good impact on society so yeah that's the whole reason we're doing it dbs you're absolutely right and we have some really interesting challenges and guests coming up that will put this to the test thanks to both of you for joining me today and thank you for listening to us my name is Anjali Beatty, and there's more from us at www.thepsych-aigroup.com and where all good podcasts live. <laughs>